Welcome to the Holistic Healing Project, a podcast that explores how we can optimize our health, support our body's natural ability to heal, and deepen our relationships to ourselves, each other, and the planet. I'm your host, Dr. Laura MacDonald, and each week I'll be bringing you conversations with a range of experts and thought leaders to empower and inspire you on your own journey of healing. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It's lovely to have you here. It's been a while and I hope the last few months have been kind to you. I hope that you and your family are well. And just a big thank you for joining me for season two of the podcast. So I'm kicking things off with a fascinating conversation with Charles Eisenstein. Charles is a gifted speaker, an author, and a thought leader of our time. He helps us by asking us the bigger questions like, why are we really here and how can we heal, not just on an individual level, but on a societal level? He's written several powerful books, including The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, Sacred Economics, and The Ascent of Humanity. And during the pandemic, he has penned two really important essays, The Coronation and The Conspiracy Myth, both of which I have read several times. And if you haven't yet read them, I really recommend taking half an hour or so and diving into the world of Charles. His mind is endlessly fascinating and he really illuminated quite a few things for me that I was wondering about and a bit unsure about during this pandemic. So yeah, definitely check those out if you haven't yet read them. So this conversation, as I mentioned, is different to the previous conversations I've had. This is really a bit of a zoom out away from individual health to focus on society and systems and institutions. And yeah, it's interesting. It's deep. It's complicated. And in places, it's even a little bit controversial. Charles and I don't always completely agree. And yet it's important to have these conversations where we meet in the middle and we chat and we listen. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope that it illuminates something for you. And I hope it helps you to start looking at health, not only on an individual level, but this society level this ecological level and this planetary level that we all need to really start considering so i hope you enjoy and as always if you can rate and review that is really really important to me so thank you in advance hi charles thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today hi lauren happy to be here so I have been a longtime follower of you. Your words, your work have really helped me in the past through some difficult periods of my own life. And I always come back to the space between stories, which is, I know, mm. something that you have spoken about a lot. And in my own life, when I found myself between you know, these different chapters that we all go through, I always come back to the space between stories. And I feel like we're all right now in this space between stories. And your work speaks so eloquently and powerfully to these times, um, these opportunities that we have in crisis and suffering. And it's really that I wanted to speak to you about today, because for a long time, I've been focusing on through the Holistic Healing Project and through working as a doctor on focusing on really healing the self. So whether that's, the, you know, mind, body, spirit, it's really a return to wholeness and healing. And 
for a while, I didn't really realise that I was missing a bigger part. And that is the more societal healing that we need to go through, the cultural healing, the systems healing, really. And I've realised that we cannot just heal in isolation. We can only get part of the way on this journey before we start to look outwards. So I'm really excited to speak to you because I know this is really your, your life's work. So to start with, for any listeners who have no idea who Charles Eisenstein is and have are yet to read your incredible essays that you have written over the last few months. I would love to just dive into the first essay you wrote during this pandemic, which was The Coronation, and really explore the way that you see it as an opportunity for us all at the moment without ignoring the suffering and the difficulty that's been happening and specifically the way that you describe it as a crossroads. Yeah, I, I could probably enter into it through the concept you just offered of a space between stories and the understanding, like you were talking about, how you have been so dedicated to helping people heal or starting with your own healing and then healing the self. And then understanding that what that means, or even what health means, health means wholeness, right? So what is actually being made whole through the process of healing? And if we accept that ourselves are these separate individuals, then healing means, you know, to fix this particular body, to fix this particular individual, this particular skin encapsulated mind. But when we understand self in a different way as a, a set of relationships, as a symphony of relationships, as a whole galaxy of relationships, then you realize that you cannot heal the self or be healthy or thrive or be happy in any way if those relationships are not healthy and if the beings to whom you are relating are also not healthy in some sense of the word. So the quest for health inevitably takes on a social dimension. It could take on a political dimension. It could take on a community dimension. It can't just stay limited to the separate self. Even on like a really like biological level, it's now understood that our health depends on having a thriving ecosystem within our bodies that consists not only of human cells, but of even more, way more bacterial cells and yeast cells and, and all that. Like this was, when I was first talking about such things 20 years ago, people were like, what? Bacteria in our bodies? Ooh, you know, it was as if I just walked in out of a spaceship or something. But now it's really well known. Or you would think that it's really well known. But then we see this uh, response to COVID-19, where we are, as you were saying, at a crossroads. And one direction is to kind of retreat back into the old story. Another direction would be to really take that step into a new paradigm. The old story being health is a matter of enforcing the boundaries of your separate self. So you, you lock down, you quarantine, you distance, you wash your hands, you wear a mask, uh, you prevent any bad thing from coming in. If you understand health in terms of relationship, that is delusional. Uh, we need these biological level relationships, not to mention social relationships. 
how can, I mean, immunity is, is related also to our loneliness or our connections. Uh, in fact, that, that's the biggest predictor of chronic disease is loneliness, not smoking, not drinking, loneliness. So yeah, that, and, and that, that conclusion comes naturally. It's of, of course, if you understand yourself as not this separate being. But right now we're seeing uh, what looks like, at least in the initial stages, you know, the first few months of this new era that the coronavirus has launched, we're seeing uh, really a retreat into an old story where, where all of that knowledge seems to have been cast on the side. And we've doubled down on the story of separation, the story of control as a response to this. And the other direction would be to say, yeah, this isn't the world we want. This isn't the life we want. And it's not even rational. It's not working. Let's really take seriously this last 20 or 30 years of scientific research into alternative and holistic medicine instead of relegating it to the, to the ghetto of non-essential services, which is, I don't know about Australia, but that's what it is here. Like my chiropractor's closed. My wife, who's an acupuncturist and body worker, she can't see clients, you know, um, it's all shut down. And I think that we should go the opposite direction. We should embrace that and take seriously. I mean, it's voluminous research that demonstrates the effect of all kinds of alternative modalities and practices on our immune system. I mean, it's, this should not be controversial. Anyway, that's that's one aspect of the crossroads. Yeah, and it's it's been really interesting to see what has been shared so widely in the mainstream media. And it's not the conversation about really supporting your immune system through nutrition and sleep and exercise and yeah, or some alternative practices, especially things that just can reduce your stress, whether it's the yoga or the body work, the breath work. That seems to have been ignored really by the mainstream. And it's just a focus on the vaccination and looking, you know, obviously we all need to be washing our hands and, you know, social distancing to a degree, but it just seems that only part of the story is being told, um, which I find fascinating. And I know you've talked a lot about data points and how, you know, in this polarized world that we are living in, we have the one camp who are saying, you know, and I, I don't actually personally agree with this, but, you know, we should just be out hugging and not worrying about social distancing and trying to get herd immunity very quickly. And then we've got this other very polarized camp, which is saying, you know, stay inside. We need to wait for the vaccination. And no one's really talking in the middle and everyone seems to be ignoring the kind of outlier data points on both sides. And we just end up in this stalemate, but also very polarized. And I'd love you to just hear your thoughts on that, because I know these data points are something you've mentioned before. Yeah, I have, you know, I've been obsessively studying this situation, you know, ever since it began. And I have not yet encountered a satisfactory narrative that accounts for all the data points. I do maybe differ with you a bit in, in uh, I'm pretty convinced by the scientists and epidemiologists and physicians who are saying that lockdown was a mistake, social distancing is a mistake, masks are a mistake. I think that initially it looked like going for herd immunity would overload the medical system. Uh, and so I was like, okay, yeah, let's flatten the curve. Now the rationale has morphed from flattening the curve 
to something else. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, the boogeyman is going to come back if we don't continue enacting these rituals uh, that make us feel safe. So I, I think that, that the masks make us feel safe uh, and they become a, a signal of our, of our civic virtue um, and uh, a badge of conformity that is really hard to, to, to break. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't, for one thing, I think I've already had coronavirus. I think I had it right in the early stages. I was traveling, I was on airplanes, I was in California, I was in enclosed spaces with large groups of people. I mean, I, everything, you know. Um, so I'm probably even immune at this point. Um, uh, but even so, like, uh, the rationale that we're being offered now is kind of a permanent rationale. Uh, until the distant day when we get a vaccine, but then there could be other diseases, other coronaviruses. As long as we make safety our top priority and our sacred value, then there's, why would you ever go back to, to weddings, dances, parties, festivals, uh, churches, choirs, um, like, when when safety becomes the holy grail and the yardstick of progress, then all the rest of life gets sacrificed to it. And we end up in a kind of world that I really don't want to, to be part of. Um, yeah, it's that idea of survival over actually living fully. Where do we draw the line? What's acceptable? And I guess that's something that we each have to ask ourselves. But when that decision is taken away from us, it becomes so much harder to show up in your own life in the way that you see fit. I guess I'm just asking myself all of these questions at the moment. I know people like yourself are really helping me to just think deeper uh, um, about what's going on. And yet I haven't got to any answers. I'm still in the unknown. I'm not sure. I'm really closely following certain key doctors who I respect enormously, people like Zach Bush, um, Kelly Brogan, Christine Northrup, you know, these voices in the space who, I, who I've followed for a long time, they've got a very different view on everything. So I'm staying open-minded mm -hmm. to what they're saying. And yet I'm following the mainstream and the narrative. And, and that also makes a lot of sense to me on, on one level as well. So I'm asking just all these questions on a daily basis um, and the answers I'm coming up with are changing every day as well. So yeah. I, I think it's like all of us, we, we can't really find truth and I think that's what we're searching for and I know your essays speak so eloquently to this is that we just don't know. We don't know what's going on and we don't know where to look for, for the answers. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could say that we never know for sure. There's no such thing as absolute certainty and after, absolute proof. But that doesn't mean that we should never take action or never make choices based on the best information available. What I'm really calling for is an examination, uh, an introspection of our own biases. Where does our choice of what to believe come from? It's obviously not coming at least not primarily, not coming in general from evidence and reason. Most people would say that their beliefs come from evidence and reason, and they're open-minded and they look at all the evidence and then they decide what's true, right? But actually, our unconscious biases 
select what we even accept to be evidence, what we let in and how we interpret it. I mean, I do this too. You know, if something, some piece of data comes in that I don't want to believe or that shows that I was wrong in the past or that undermines my worldview or calls into question my, my virtue and my place in society, I'm going to be pretty skeptical of that piece of evidence. I'm going to look right away for something that debunks it or refutes it. But if uh, uh, something comes in that validates uh, what I already believe or what I want to believe or how I see myself, I'm probably not going to uh, exercise a lot of scrutiny over that piece of evidence. Like um, the other day, I was talking to a neighbor. Okay, like full reveal here, I think that in the U.S., at least, the um, number of deaths is exaggerated, that, that they're overcounted, you know. So, so and, and, you know, and, and some say that they're undercounted. That's uh, kind of what the official people are saying. It's under, they're undercounted because people are dying at home if, from COVID. Well, you know, so then my neighbor is telling me about his, his um, friend's father who just died of COVID. And he says, but yeah, you know, he had... Um, diabetes so severely. He was, he was like 84 years old, had diabetes so severe that he'd already had a leg amputated and also had stage four cancer. Uh, and then he got COVID and he died. So on the death certificate, it says COVID-19. And I'm like, yeah, see? Whereas if I didn't want to believe that, I would take that same data point. I'd be like, well, that's just an anecdote. Or I might say, um, he could have lived for five more years, you know, is that neighbor, does he have some agenda? Why is he sharing this story? Like, there's all kinds of ways to, to maintain a belief that we want to keep. So in this polar, you were talking about this polarized environment, when people become identified, uh, politically identified with a certain position, then, then any anyone who questions that is an enemy because one of the, the key unstated assumptions of politics is that the world would be so much better if our side wins. If you hold that as the truth, then even if some inconvenient fact inserts itself into your awareness and you know that that's true, you might not want to admit that. Or you might not want us to let anyone know about that because it's going to undermine your position. It's not helpful to the narrative in an information war. So this is one of the deeper um, uh, strands of psychic DNA in our, in our society that um, progress comes through conquest, through dominating the other. Uh, it could be dominating the other side, it could be uh, spraying Roundup on your field and killing all the weeds, and then you'll have a better crop. It could be um, keeping out all of the viruses and all of the bacteria and all of the germs and everything that could invade your your uh, castle of of self. Uh, it could be you know destroying the political opponents, and and so once if we embrace that formula then political polarization is inevitable. Um, 
a, a, a tilt toward fascism is inevitable because that is the extreme of control, of purity. Fascism is associated with purity, with keeping out the bad, purifying the race, moral purity. So this is a, 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 a deep, a part of the deep mythology of civilization as we know it. And from that place, then we, we, we naturally see disease in terms of pathogens. Whereas from a, a new story, from the new and ancient story of, of interconnection, interdependency, interrelationship, interbeing, we might first look to, say, the bioterrain and ask, what is the diseased tissue state that is inviting a pathogen in? or that is making it vulnerable to a pathogen. And we look, we, we're not in such a simple us versus them, victim, perpetrator, rescuer dynamic. Mm, yeah, it's fascinating. And one area I've been looking at recently is the idea that actually we can potentially gain a lot from being exposed to viruses and the way that the viral genome can actually become part of our genome and actually contribute to our evolution. And sometimes they serve a purpose I read recently that there's there's one particular virus that has enabled us over however many hundreds of years to be able to sustain a viable pregnancy. And that has only come about through a vi virus essentially entering our body. So it is really interesting that for so long we have considered viruses as something to be eradicated. And actually we're coming to understand that we, we are like, you know, the microbiome, we are viruses, we are bacteria. We're actually, that there's a reason for, for this kind of relationship that we have with them. And it's not always about stamping it out and controlling it and eradicating it. Uh, so this field's fascinating, really interesting. Yeah, and it really sends us into unknown territory. You know, it opens up questions that don't have answers yet. Like, like, yeah, when we accept that not only the, what is it, many trillions or even quadrillion bacteria, but also maybe even more than that of viruses in our body are part of health, then like the whole concept of an antiviral, like what does that mean? What are we interfering with if we're not letting viruses uh, do their work, which is to transmit information from cell to cell, even from organism to organism, from species to species, and yeah, like evolution uh, happens not through, not very much through random mutation and natural selection, but through the horizontal transfer of DNA and uh, endosymbiosis, where, where another organism is taken in. Now, usually it's a virus, but if you go back um, uh, you know, through evolutionary biology, it's even other whole beings getting taken in to, to, that become mitochondria or chloroplasts uh, or maybe even the flagella. Uh, but anyway, uh, just on the viral level, you know, that's, that's something like, according to Lynn Margulis, like 50% of our genome is originally viral in origin. And the more recent stuff is saying 8 to 10% is from retroviruses. And this, is, this isn't just junk DNA either. This is actually like coding sequences and regulatory sequences that are they're they're part of who we are. So, like the example you raised, I didn't I didn't hadn't heard that, but that's that's fascinating. And then another data point that has to be also taken in is that 
you know, because some of these people like Zach Bush that you were mentioning, it's almost like they don't believe in contagion at all. But I certainly have data points that seem like contagion does happen. I mean, what about chickenpox? You know, like those of us who think that chickenpox is an important developmental milestone for the psychology of the child and maybe even the, the physiology of the child, we, we will take our kids to a chickenpox party to get them infected. That happens. And it's also true that people are dying of a new disease right now, COVID-19. It's a new disease. And I mean, you can theorize about how it's, you know, related to 5G or glyphosate or something like that. But there are also, and, and, and there are certainly a lot of gaps in the infection narrative, but there are also seem what seems to me to be clear instances of infection as well, a lot of them. And sometimes it kills people. So I'm not saying that that disproves bioterrain theory or disproves the evolutionary role of viruses, but it certainly adds more complexity to the conversation. Personally, I'm unwilling to shunt off any information just because it doesn't fit the narrative that I would like to believe. I really enjoyed the conspiracy myth. So that was your second essay after the coronation. And I was reading it and I was waiting to, to get, you know, what does Charles think about conspiracy theories? I was waiting to get to that point and I thought it was so clever that suddenly, you know, you, you address that you appreciate that is what everyone's waiting for and you almost give two narratives, two options. Um, and actually you refuse to come down on either side we know everyone wants to know everyone's opinion. Do you believe in any of these so-called conspiracy theories or do you not? And actually, I love that you were asking a deeper question, which is, but why do we even have these in the first place? You know, it almost, it almost doesn't matter. And I say that as a bit of a throwaway comment, of course, it does matter. And yet it's the deeper why. What's wrong with our society? Why, why are we so polarised? And it's this lack of trust in authority and the media. And it's going to be really interesting because I feel that if the so-called experts have got it right and, you know, lockdown was appropriate and the statistics that we initially heard, I mean, you've already alluded to the fact that it's, you know, maybe not as as bad as they initially said it was going to be. But if, if, if on some level they are, they are proven, the data points align and we can accept that they did the right thing, I think that potentially we will increase our trust in authority and, and maybe the media. And yeah, I think if it, if it goes the other way, you know, we're already in such a precarious position of not trusting any anyone anyway. It's just, I just don't know what's going to happen because we've really all given up our liberties it's so so easily mm -hmm. really did you set out when you sat down to write the essay did you set out knowing that you would just be very in the middle yeah so there's a lot there so so basically i'll just kind of quickly summarize the theme of the essay which is that the most important question is not the literal truth of these conspiracy theories for me it's it's what they reveal about uh, our society that's the function of a myth it gives narrative form to unconscious truths of the psyche or of the social unconscious, you know, of the society. And one of these is what you mentioned. It is revealing our profound distrust in authority, at least of a sizable segment of the population. And I would say that that distrust is well-earned. It's not like the authorities have been truthful to us for these last 50 years, or that they haven't been devious and dishonest, uh, or that there haven't been actual conspiracies. Uh, unless you're going to deny that Iran-Contra Iran ever happened, or 
Vioxx, you know, or Watergate or COINTELPRO uh, or the infiltration of the civil rights movement in the United States, the infiltration of the environmental movement, et cetera, et cetera. Like these things happen. Now, most of what I mentioned has been already uncovered. But to think that those are the that, you know, that our system is so healthy that all conspiracies are eventually revealed and prosecuted, that is very optimistic. So well-earned or weapons of mass destruction, you know, that the whole pretext for the Iraq war, or Gulf of Tonkin incident, et cetera, et cetera. So it's scary um, when you start listing them, the way it goes on and on and on. You, of course, no wonder we don't trust authority right now. Yeah. Uh, the CIA smuggling drugs into the inner cities, you know. Um, I mean, okay, so so the distrust is well-earned. And and another thing that it reveals, uh, I have, there's a whole list of them, but, but, but one that's just coming to me right now is this sneaking suspicion that we're not being told everything, that there is a whole reality, a whole dimension that is outside of official reality. It can be, uh, could take the form of, of and I'm not, I don't really know your story so much, Lauren, but, but you know, many people have had experiences in, in the healing realm that do not fit into medical reality. If you have benefited from, say, acupuncture or chiropractic or homeopathy, and you look that up on Wikipedia, it says it's quackery. It says it's pseudoscience. It says it's ineffective. And Wikipedia is one of the chief pillars of official reality. And this is just one example of, of the kind of thing that people have direct firsthand experience of that conflicts with the narrative. Um, and then the other thing that the, is, is just the idea that those who we think are in power are actually the puppets of some nefarious force. The conspiracy theory says that force is this group of evil conspirators. But that's just one way to narrate that truth. Another way would be to say that that force is capitalism or patriarchy or the, what I call it, the mythology of our civilization, the story of separation, the story of control, the story of ascent, the story of dualism between matter and spirit, like all of these uh, programs, unconscious programs that run our civilization. Those are the puppet masters, maybe. Well, maybe not. Maybe there are some, even, but for me, even if there are evil cabals who are pulling the strings, you still have to ask what allows them to even operate? What is the terrain? If they're the virus, what is the terrain? So as far as like, okay, so you asked me a question though. You said, when I first set out to write this article, did I know I was going to come end up with uh, not committing to yes or no? That actually, yes, I knew that because I don't think that it's possible to, f to fully understand conspiracy theories, the whole phenomenon, while clinging to an objective view of reality. The idea that either it's true or it isn't. Either the World Trade Center fell because of the impact of a jet or it was a controlled demolition. Either there are UFOs visiting Earth, uh, or there aren't. Like, this, this idea that reality is a thing separate from ourselves is a dogma. 
It is a metaphysical claim that is not provable, nor is it falsifiable, which also marks it as a myth. Now, I'm not saying that reality is purely a construct of our own or that our beliefs create our reality. What I'm saying is that there is a mysterious and intimate connection between how we see the world and how the world is. That isness is a function of relationship also, just like self is. And that that point is is it's a quite a nuanced position that requires extensive argumentation, you know, and, and context. So I didn't want to like go that deep into in that particular essay. I, I referenced it a little bit. You know, I said, if have you ever noticed that great faith or great paranoia attracts the experiences that confirm it? Like all of your work, I had to read it several times because, I mean, you write so beautifully, but it's, for anyone whose mind doesn't work in the same way as yours, it's it's a lot to take in. And like you said, although you've only touched on, on you didn't go too deep on that specific area, you get you're, you're kind of the cogs turning. And yeah, I had to re- go back and read it again and again. And I'm sure I need to go back and a third time to see what's what's going on and what else comes up. But but one thing I'd love to explore with you is, um, and I know you didn't specifically necessarily touch on this in in the conspiracy myth, is the idea of censorship and free speech, because I found it interesting that certain videos, and I won't mention who, but you know certain conspiracy theorists or or just people with a slightly different viewpoint, their um, videos have been taken down from YouTube, Google, and suddenly you can't find them and. I completely understand as, you know, somebody who has been trained in the conventional medical system to, you know, on a, in a certain way to take science as fact and that is gospel and that we want to prevent people having misinformation and that can be very dangerous. And actually as a patient, as someone who's had cancer, it was interesting when I was it's so ill, you know, stage four, did think I was going to die, that I was looking on the internet for everything, any potential cure, things that I know, you know, hadn't been trained to believe could help me, or even, you know, rationally, I couldn't get my head around the fact that it could possibly even do anything. And yet, you know, especially for vulnerable people who are desperate, we, we do need to protect them, because I've been in that headspace where you will try anything and you will spend your money on anything because you, you just want to give yourself the best possible chance. At the same time, I completely see that by removing these videos, by who who is it, who is behind it, who's choosing what we get to see and what we get to learn and and sometimes it's almost are we preventing progress and truth coming out anyway or things that might help someone. You know, there was early on um around the covid uh, scenario, there was a um ICU doctor in the states, I think, and he spoke up and said why are we treating it with ventilators? Um, we, it actually looks more like altitude sickness. And he was seen a bit, as a bit fringe to begin with. And then, you know, fast forward a few months and it's actually more in the mainstream narrative. Um, but he was quite criticised. And it's just, I just find it all really interesting. It's a mess and this censorship and this freedom of speech. And like, I can see both sides and I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, I mean, that's you just named the problem with protecting people from disinformation is that those who are doing the protecting... Uh, have to be trustworthy. And what if their their uh, definition of correct information is influenced by financial interests, uh, 
political interests, then it's as if one of the hucksters took over the internet. Like you were doing all this research, you know, and you were researching alternative therapies and stuff. And some of them are probably valid and really deserve further study and haven't been getting it because of the way that science is funded and the way medicine is funded and the way that uh, publishing works and all that. And some of them were probably fraudulent uh, and really good at making themselves appear to be uh, authentic. And how can you tell? So imagine if one of those that are totally fraudulent became the authority. Now, I'm not saying that all of conventional medicine is fraudulent, but I'm, what I'm saying is that it's not sound either. A lot is being kept out that is actually, like, I mean, the whole thing with vitamin C, vitamin D, I don't, I don't know what it is now, but a month ago, like videos that touted uh, vitamin D for prevention and vitamin or for, for and for cure, I guess those were getting taken down, those were getting censored, those were getting debunked, and uh, there's a lot of research that backs up those claims. So it's not even like, what does science say? Science isn't monolithic either. I was I, I'm on a thread with a uh, a doctor who's working in a hospital, a COVID hospital, you know, and he's like, you know, until this year, the science has been saying that masks do not protect against viral transmission. And there's many, many, many studies showing that. Now, all of a sudden, they're coming up with research that says they do, in fact, help. He's like, I'm kind of suspicious about that. So if you want, so this is like, so science is like the primary ecclesiastical authority in our culture. If you want it, to, it's the source of truth. It's what the, what we agree is the source of truth, generally speaking. I mean, there's still people who say, no, it's the Bible or something like that. But but as far as like what our institutions are built on, how we make public policy, uh, what we invoke in order to seem credible, what we use to, to separate the believers from the infidels uh, and to ridicule somebody and to persecute them, it's to, for being unscientific, right? So science, it's our source of truth. So if science itself isn't monolithic, then you end up in the arena of the dueling studies where I say, uh, we shouldn't be wearing masks. Ha, here, 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 look at these studies. And you say, yes, we should look at these studies. And we never get anywhere. I'm not really sure what the way out is actually. And the way that, that the media has been manipulating science. You know, you can, if, if, if indeed there is a diversity of, say, epidemiological studies, uh, some of them predicting tens of millions of deaths if we don't lock down, some of them saying that we'll actually be better off locking down, like, like which one gets amplified? There's a diversity out there. Which one gets amplified? What science is excluded and why? I mean, that that's what a journalist needs to do, to do that research. Like, what gets accepted into the canon? What gets excluded? Is that simply because the result of well-functioning uh, peer review and scientific consensus building? Or is that actually the operation of paradigms that have been woven into funding, academic promotion, ap academic public publishing, where if you violate that paradigm, you are a heretic? 
or an apostate. You know, you get cast out, you get excommunicated, your funding gets cut off. It's very, it's just like the Catholic Church was and maybe still is, you know. If you contradict established dogma, you are a heretic and you suffer the consequences. You are, you're put on the, the pillory and publicly shamed. You see that so much in medicine. If you are slightly open and, you know, again, not open to things that, you know, we can probably all agree do not help, but, you know, open to whether it's a product or a, a body work or something that's, people say helps them and you have personal experience of it helping you. And, and yet you're told, no, you're wrong and therefore you are a quack. And it happens really quickly. You don't need to say much and for you to quickly be outcast. Um, and, and it's something I've been kind of moving around um, the last few years as I've kind of got more and more into holistic medicine and mind-body medicine. And it will be interesting to see as I, I see more colleagues, you know, private messaging me saying, actually, I'm really interested in this, but I'm afraid to speak up that I practice energy medicine or that I believe that, yes, nutrition can support your immune system, which, you know, even five years ago, people were worried about saying food is medicine. And now finally, the narrative, the story is changing. Um, and it seems to be more accepted by the so-called scientific elite. But it's a it's a minefield and you have to be really courageous and brave, I think, to step forward. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, the doctors I listed earlier, I, I don't necessarily always agree with everything they're saying, but I absolutely admire the way that they are standing up and speaking their truth, because mm -hmm. I know what it's like to, to be on the receiving end of the comments that are, you know, less favorable and people questioning yeah. your, whether you really have a, a voice and whether you should be speaking up at all. And I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah, there's some, um, to, the, to the list that you mentioned, I would also add Dr. David Katz, who is quite mainstream, you know, is like teaches at Yale Medical School or whatever. I heard him on the um, Rich Roll podcast, actually. He was brilliant, yeah. really brilliant. Yeah. And then Lisa Rankin also, mm -hmm. um, she put a post out called 17 Unanswered Questions About COVID-19 that was um, hard to ignore. Yeah, no, I did read that. I th I, I've been a long-term fan of Lisa. She's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I was also, who also came to mind is Bill Bankston. He developed, it's called the Bankston Method, you know, and he himself says it's hocus pocus. Basically, it's like this energy medicine, you know, it's energy healing. Oh, I have heard of this when he does it on the mice to cure them of cancer. Yes, I have heard of him. I didn't, the name didn't click. Yeah, he'll take skeptical graduate students and teach them the method and it works for them too. And study after study after study, you know, enormous high remission rates and you know, he's done something like 17 of these carefully controlled, blinded studies, you know, demonstrating tremendous results. I mean, if you had a pharmaceutical medicine that had a tenth the efficacy of this method, it would be a blockbuster drug. But because the reigning paradigm just simply cannot countenance that something like this would work, uh, the studies go nowhere. So, so it's not just about what science says. It's also about what we say about science. And what we're brave enough to say. And what we're brave enough to say. Like I'm on, I'm on various threads with doctors, you know, and various conversations and like privately, a lot of them are way more skeptical than they dare to be publicly because they know it'll happen. You know, look what happens to the ones who do speak out. 
I, I have a feeling that things could really radically flip. I don't think it's guaranteed. It depends on people being courageous. Uh, someone has to stick their neck out first. Then everybody else can kind of peek their necks out too. So we've talked a lot about the situation we're in, the fact that we don't really know exactly what's going on, like many people, and that we're okay, well, we're becoming okay with not knowing and the uncertainty. And yeah, I know that many people listening, and myself included, it's our nature to want to be able to you know, put a bit of grounding on top of all this theorizing and almost have some steps, you know, okay, but what can I do now? Um, I know you've spoken for years about this, this more beautiful world that our hearts can see. What, first of all, what does that look like for you? What is this more beautiful world that you envision and that you hope might come out of this situation? And again, that's always not to belittle um, the, the, the suffering that's happening all around the world. I think that a more beautiful world emerging from this will happen because of the suffering. For one thing, we're being shown the destination that we've been headed to anyway. Like social distancing is not new. Are we going to make it permanent and culminate a trend that has been going on for a long time as life has moved indoors, life has moved online, totalitarian control, not new, government surveillance, uh, you know, not new. So, so this is one thing, like that kind of suffering um, but but really, the, the the greatest suffering happening today, I think, under COVID is not from the disease itself, but it's from the response to the disease. In relatively affluent, privileged places, it's not so easy to see just how severe the suffering is. But if you were in rural India or Africa, you would be seeing enormous amounts of hunger. There are, there, there, are, there are children not just going to bed hungry, but, you know, going days and weeks without food. Because uh, as, as, many people, hundreds of millions of people on this earth pay for their day's food with their day's wages. They have no cushion. And when they are locked down, they have nothing to eat. And there are, the UN World Food Project estimates that 260 million or so will face starvation. Yeah, no, I, I saw year. that. They said 300 yeah. million up from, I think every year it's normally about 130 million, which is, yeah. I mean, you can't even get your head around that number anyway. The fact right. that we've been living in a society that allows or at least turns a, a blind eye to the fact 130 million people are going without food or hungry. And yet now it's going to potentially, as a result of COVID or the fallout from COVID at least, with food right. supply chains and things, yeah, 300 million when I saw that figure, I just, you know, and we're, and we're not really talking about that, are we, compared to... Not so much. No, that's kind of lost in the conversation about case fatality rate and prevalence rate and false positives and false negatives, you know? It's, it's not part of the math. And we do hear some talk of the health effects of unemployment, the health effects of isolation, uh, but it's mainly it mainly seems in our Western society, isn't it? It's and it's almost the the middle class that are so so called having been affected, and you know we do talk about the people like I think you were just about to say who are experiencing extreme mental health issues, potentially suicide off the back of this, and that is touched on, and that's a really important point. But 
But where's the bigger conversation? As far as what a more beautiful world could be, like, whatever it is, it has to be based on, in my view, you know, it's, it's a world built on a new story of interbeing that understands we're not separate selves, that we're all in this together, that my health is depends on the health of society and the health of the planet. And this is, you know, to some extent, I think COVID is suggesting that to us just because it is a pandemic. No one can escape it. So in a certain sense, we are all in this together. Even if it turns out that the disease wasn't as deadly as we were told, et cetera, et cetera, like still we had this experience of the entire human race coming together around one thing. Like the most important issue for most people on earth in the front of their minds was the same thing at the same time. That's never happened before, as far as I know. Maybe during the Cuban Missile Crisis it happened. But, you know, it, this, is, this is a unique moment that I think will work on us in the collective unconscious for years and years. Maybe we'll feed into a, uh, a solidarity economy, a solidarity society, um, a compassionate society. Where, where it, another thing it's doing is it's giving us practice in compassion. Um, you know, what is it like to, to be you? What is it like to be trapped in a nursing home it, it is stirring, stirring compassion. And, you know, at the same time, as we were talking about before, the opposite of compassion, polarization, judgment, the, the vicious attacks. I mean, the reason I wrote that, or one reason I wrote that essay was because, you know, I almost didn't publish the conspiracy myth because the personal attacks from the, from the previous essay were so vicious. I was feeling kind of bruised, you know. I was like, wow, I never realized what a horrible person I was until I read some of the critiques. I did read, was it Daniel? I can't remember his name. Daniel Pinchback. Daniel Pinchback. I did read his as well. I feel like he was kind of, he was pretty polite, you know. He wasn't, um, he was not as harsh as some of them. Although there were a lot of, uh, I don't know, I felt like there was some straw man arguments and and some misunderstanding, uh, especially of the ascent of humanity, which he thought was about ascension, but it's actually the opposite. Um, it's actually about reuniting with matter, um, not about transcending it. But then I guess that's where the courage comes and the bravery, pressing publish when actually you know that there's going to be, there's always going to be those naysayers. You know, I, I definitely don't want to uh, claim that that was very brave considering that actually my life and limb are not <laughs> at threat, you know, uh, and... I can just not read the comments. It's interesting though, isn't it? How fear, it's still fear. Fear's fear. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, you're afraid for your life um, or, or afraid for your identity and afraid for your, the attack that you're going to potentially get. It mm -hmm. still drives that fear response in the body. Yeah, there's a lot of fear out there. It's, that's another thing that, that the pandemic is showing us. It's showing us how afraid we are, how fragile we are. Someone was pointing out that in that the last big pandemic was the Hong Kong flu in 1968, which killed probably three or four million people globally, which is what, like 10 times as many as COVID has killed? Like a lot. <laughs> and 
as the pandemic subsided, that was when Woodstock happened. Half a million people gathered in one place. And I don't think hygiene was that good at Woodstock, <laughs> actually. You know, everybody was, I mean, doing Lord knows what, you know, like, like this was not, they didn't have enough toilets. I mean, this was, this was not a society living in fear. And I, I just, I went running the other day, you know. I mean, I'm going for a five-mile run here. I'm not, like, looking like a dangerous, contagious person. And, like, on the path, there's, like, this woman and her, and her little daughter, her three-year-old daughter. And, like, she, like, there's her eyes, like, widen with fear. She takes her daughter, like, puts her daughter behind her and, like, covers her face, you know. And I'm like, what is the message that is being drilled into young to children, you know, it's, it's like, be afraid of people. We're teaching fear of people. And I noticed how it actually, uh, I'm afraid of people. Uh, this is just bringing into the forefront of consciousness something that has been around for a long time. Like, I, when, I, when I'm going running or I'm for a walk somewhere and someone's coming down the road the other direction, I kind of... I have this urge to turn around or to avoid them, you know, like I have a deep-seated fear of human beings. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think that is, at least in large part, a consequence of living in the kind of capitalistic system that we do, which really sets us up as competitors to each other and tells us and enforces that your well-being is contrary to mine. Everyone's trying to get the best deal. Like the human nature in market economics is predatorial. Like we're each trying to maximize our self-interest. That's economic theory. And we have a system that reifies that economic theory. Uh, not to mention a biological paradigm of the same thing on a genetic level. Every, every organism seeking to maximize reproductive self-interest. So that's the, the mythological climate and the economic climate that immerses us. So, of course, we're afraid of people. And so now it's like that latent force of fear, it is just quivering there, ready to erupt. And then as soon as, as, soon as there's a reason for it, and then coronavirus comes, and now it takes form, that energy takes form as... as you know, this direct, explicit fear of other people. And then we go through a ritual to calm ourselves. See, that, that, that you, you put a mask on and now you're safe. So this latent, ambient, uh, formless fear, it gains a specific target that then relieves the fear. Once you can project all of the fear onto a receiving object, and, and then do a, a ritual to, to protect yourself. It's like when I was a kid, I was afraid of robbers coming into the house. So I would like get a pretend gun, you know, and keep it by my bed. And that solved the problem. I'm not saying that that, that, that is what's going on, but what is going on is to at least some extent uh, a playing out of these psychodynamics of unformed fear that is ambient in our civilization. The question that's coming up for me is, 
But Charles, what do we do about it? How do we move from fear to love? And I know it's not that simple. I feel that as you're talking, it's, it's simply really the awareness that I feel is, is key right now. And your essays have definitely helped me gain more awareness. And just having this conversation, and hopefully anyone listening, it's the awareness that this is even going on in the first place that is the first step. And maybe all we need right now is that first step. And that's the way we move towards love and away from fear. Because when we don't know we're in it, we're out there buying the toilet roll and thinking there's not enough and we're in the scarcity mode and afraid of people. And if we're not even aware that we're, we're in that state, then how can we even start to take the first step towards the opposite, which of course is love? I'd love to know what you think about that. Do you have any more concrete answers? Do you have a path that we can walk well, if, if you've been listening to this conversation, then you're probably looking at your fear, um, maybe looking at your uh, response, your triggers to, to what's been said. And this process of introspection and, and self-inquiry, it changes the context of the fear. Fear is not the enemy, ultimately, Fear has a very noble purpose in our lives. It, 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 creates a, uh, it creates boundaries within which we can grow, within which we can thrive, within which we can fulfill the self in that stage of the self's development. And at some point, those boundaries become stifling, not protective. And then at that point, most people become very interested in their fear and want to challenge the fear and wonder what is on the other side of that fear. They want to break through. And at those moments, it does seem that fear is the enemy and it's what lim is limiting them. And that's true in those moments, but it's not universally true. So this is not a war on fear. It is simply, I'm just simply pointing attention. And this might answer your question. Um, how, do you, how do we liberate ourselves from fear it's by attending to the part of us that is done with that particular fear. And maybe a lot of people today are not done with that fear, and they really need to explore the territory of being afraid of everybody and everything and washing their hands all the time and wearing masks. And it's heartbreaking, you know, not letting their children play with other children. Yeah, so I think that, that it's it's paradoxical almost, that liberation from fear does not come through an attempt to overcome fear, but it comes from a willingness and a readiness to do so, giving attention to your willingness and readiness. Uh, I would also say give attention to the part of you that is not afraid. You know, we've, we've talked about different narratives in the public sphere, some of them saying, be afraid, be very afraid. Some of them saying, this was a hysteria, lockdown isn't serving us. And, you know, each one of those probably echoes a part of yourself. And this internal polarization is not static. It's, it's a, maybe a temporary holding pattern. But one thing here, here's one thing that makes us really want to move past our fears by saying they become stifling, like 
people are getting sick and tired of lockdown. And and the fears that had limited them, now they're, you know, breaking out of that, even if maybe on the intellectual level, they still totally will affirm all of the rationale for lockdown. But, you know, like Neil Ferguson, my mistress, you know, she's just across town there. Maybe I'll play, pay a visit, you know, or maybe I'll go out onto the beach and have a beer with my friends, you know, and, and uh, I guess a, 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 as that uh, impatience rises, people become more receptive to the anti-fear narratives, to the, to the ones that do not draw on and reinforce the fear. So maybe we're just, maybe, maybe my job is to offer those to people who are in that part of the process uh, and to trust. It's hard, it's hard to do that sometimes when I, when I see, you know, my, my dystopian nightmare playing out before my eyes. In The Ascent of Humanity, which I wrote like almost 20 years ago, in, in like the most paranoid part of the book, I, I said, what does the world of separation look like taking to its extreme? It's everybody's wearing a, you know, protective gear all the time. Uh, and all of our cities are in bubbles and everybody is always never even touches each other. Like that was my, my dystopian paranoid fantasy. And it's like, it's like, it's happening before my eyes, you know? And, and so it's almost there's also a part of me that that is uh almost like gets addicted to the bad news and to the alarmism you know and that spins a narrative of this separation going to its extreme but maybe the collective psyche is wiser than that why am i bought into things to doom and gloom sometimes so anyway this there's there's a lot of a uh, lot to think about here and I'm sure many people listening to this have also cycled through various parts of themselves that, that uh, you know, are afraid, are not afraid, are doom and gloom. And then there's something, oh, there's hope after all. That merry-go-round might be familiar. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely familiar for me. And it's, you know, on a personal level, it's sometimes you're feeling overwhelmed and unsure what's going on. And the next moment you're appreciating you're outside and you're just looking at how beautiful the, the literal world is you know whether mm-hmm. it's a butterfly or the sky or sunset and just thinking wow we're so this is such a gift to be alive and all the suffering and pain that we go through it's almost it's just worth it to see that sunset that you get to witness at the end of it all um yeah there's a lot going on thank you Charles, so much it's just wonderful to hear your your thoughts on so many things i really appreciate the way that you are helping to, I want to say helping to heal society, but it's its more to shine a light and illuminate where we could do better and almost just help us to see that we need to do better and that actually normal was not okay in the first place and that we really have a choice yeah. right now to potentially move into a better, brighter world. Yeah, thank you for your kind words and for your gracious interviewing. I know I kind of went on and on sometimes. No, Charles, honestly, I could listen to you all day. And yeah, there were so many other things I could have touched on, but I'm aware that we have um, hit the hour mark. So I will let you go. But yeah, just wonderful. Thank you. And I look forward to hopefully reading another essay of yours very soon. Okay. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. 
Thank you ever so much for listening to our conversation today. I really hope you enjoyed it. And as always, if you did, please take a moment to rate and review. And if you'd like to connect, head on over to the Holistic Healing Project Instagram or my website, which is Dr. Lauren MacDonald. And I really look forward to connecting with you in the future. Please remember that whilst I am a qualified medical doctor, I am not your medical doctor. So whilst we often talk about health and well-being and we give out tools and tips and sometimes discuss topics that are a little bit fringe or alternative, this is very much for information only. It is not individual medical advice. So please, if you have any health concerns, make sure you go and see your own practitioner.